You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 30th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up... President Putin is trying to weaponize winter to force Ukrainians to freeze or flee. NATO foreign ministers meet in Bucharest to discuss the war in Ukraine and Sweden and Finland's applications. Meanwhile, is NATO member Turkey, though, planning a new incursion into Syria? Then we celebrate the 20th anniversary of Art Basel Miami Beach and reflect on what's made the unique fair such a success over the years. Latin America was much more social and the way the Latin American component of the collecting base at Art Basel Miami Beach grew was through people. Plus the day's papers and the latest aviation news. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. But first, a look at what else is happening in the news. The leader of a far-right militia in the United States has been found guilty of plotting to overturn Joe Biden's presidential win. Former Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison has become the first leader in the country to be censured by Parliament for giving himself secret powers while in office. And three Chinese astronauts have arrived at China's space station to conduct the first in-orbit crew rotation in China's space history. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. But first, at a meeting in Bucharest, NATO foreign ministers have promised unwavering support to Ukraine as Russia continues to bombard the country's energy infrastructure. Aurélie Pounier is the deputy editor-in-chief and a reporter on NATO for online outlet Brussels 2. Aurélie, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what have leaders at the meeting agreed and are there any signs of disunity at all? Morning, Vincent. Um, Thank you for having me. Well, in terms of agreements, what we've seen is that um, NATO allies have pledged more le- more support, so more non-lethal support at first through NATO, because that's what NATO has been um, saying, is that through NATO there will only be non-lethal support being sent to Ukraine, and that means, um, the Secretary General said, more fuel, more generators, and more um, spare parts for energy infra- infrastructure would be sent to Ukraine, and that's very important because, as you said, um, he mentioned the weaponizing of winter by President Putin, and that means that um, Russia is bombing critical infrastructure, energy infrastructure, and um, and the Ukrainians are living in the dark and in the cold, really. Um, and then it's been about keeping the door to NATO open and saying that Ukraine um, will one day join. But then, as you say, in terms of unity or not unity, well, they like to say that they all agree, that they all stand behind Ukraine and that they ever will um, for as long as it takes and all of this. But then question is how do you do that because um this is i mean the the, the economy is not going great um there's high inflation there's no denying that there is an impact that the prices of energy and food are going up and the question is how do you keep up um poland even yesterday um, said that they will uh, make the refugees now pay for housing and food um which they had they hadn't said before and that's that's that shows a shift also in 
in the view of how do you support Ukrainians? Do you keep only supplying uh, Ukraine with weapons or do you actually, do you go all the way? And that's a real question for the months ahead, especially when the stocks are running low um, mm. in all the arms that you are delivering to Ukraine. And on that uh, point that you first mentioned there, the you know the energy infrastructure leaving much of Ukraine uh, in the dark and the cold for long periods, you mentioned that they'll be sending equipment and generators. Are there any plans for engineers to be sent from NATO members to try and help with the repairs? Well, that's not being um, that's never been said. Um, it could be, uh, but so far everything they've been mentioning are um, it's been about uh, in kind uh, support. So really, the fuel, the generators, the medical supply as well. Um, they've been talking about drone jammers. Um, there could be. So far, it's only being talked about. I mean, they're only being t- um, talking about uh, spare parts. But it is um, the priority. And even if it's not through NATO, the Allies and the West is really supplying all kinds of um, all kinds of support. And it goes also through humanitarian aid, which is also very important. And you mentioned their drone, uh, drone dramas. One of the things throughout this conflict that the Ukrainians have been calling for is more uh, weaponry to help with air defence to control the skies. Was there any progress made on that? Well, there hasn't been more pledges um, in the past uh, day, uh, but allies have had a sort of conference where, they, where they've also talked about their bilateral supports um, to Ukraine and how can they do that. We do expect or at least the Ukrainians expect um, more air defense supports coming up, uh, coming in the next few days and few weeks, because we've seen more bombing of and uh, of, of Ukraine. Um, so that's very important for them. Um, in any case, there will be, as as far as the lies say, there will be more. There will be more support. The question is always what it will be and when it will arrive um, and how long they can keep up with that. Mm. And the leaders were also discussing the enlargement of the alliance. What's the latest on Sweden and Finland's applications? And and you mentioned keeping the door open to Ukraine, but are there any other sort of applicants on the horizon? Um, So um, in terms of keeping the door um, open for Finland and Sweden and what's happening with Turkey, there hasn't been really much progress. They've been uh, discussing, they've been meeting over the past few months, and um, Turkey keeps asking Sweden to... Uh, send those people back to Turkey so they can be judged on uh, charges of terrorism. But Sweden keeps um, keeps saying, well, they're not terrorists according to our law. So they had to do all these changes in their constitutions and all of this. But at the end of the day, it's really for the court to decide. So it's been a bit blocked again. Um, Turkey is, um, as all the allies say, um, at least on the record, is a very important ally. Um, it's been also really um uh, very important um, honest broker when it comes to the grain deal uh, to get the grain out of Ukraine through the Black Sea. So um, not much is happening. Also, it's not just about Turkey. We've seen also that um, Hungary is also delaying its uh, green light to send to Finland and Sweden. What's um, So we, we don't really know. I mean, they have been really explicitly saying that the two are linked and that Hungary is also waiting a bit for, for the green light because Turkey is also the only member waiting uh, to also give it. But it's a bit dif- it's a bit difficult to say when this will be, um, well, when this situation will be relieved um, because it's getting very tense and people do keep saying, well, our security is at risk. When it comes to other members, um, well, it's really Ukraine's membership that's on, on the agenda at the moment. Um, but 
summarize um, do stress, it's very important that there is um, at least a track uh, that's been set so that Ukraine can, can um, over time get more and more um, integrated into the alliance uh, when other members say, well, it's really not a priority um, and let's just keep up uh, with the support. And that's really the second line that is winning at the moment um, because that's what we see. We, I mean, yesterday they did say one day Ukraine will join question is when again and there's been some frustration with several african and asian nations not stepping up to condemn russia and enforce sanctions against them is there any discussion of sort of collective nato action to put pressure on them perhaps with aid or security support withdrawal so that that has not been said publicly at least um so there hasn't been talked about it uh, talks about this uh through the press and through the media um not, so not, not that we know of. Um, I'm assuming it could be an option, but um, also how much pressure do you really want to put on these countries through security aid? That's really a question uh, because you do, if you are involved there, it's also for your own security. So if you do withdraw your support, if you do withdraw some aid, then also you're affecting yourself. So that sounds a bit... Um, maybe dangerous, I would say, but that would be interesting to look into that. Although the EU and the West um, has, um, they have been taking sanctions and economic sanctions um, against Russia, and they are trying to, um, the EU is presenting plans to make sure that there's no circumvention of the measures and that they look at the enforcement of the sanctions. And also the main point is, how do you advocate for the cause of Ukraine to these other countries that had nothing to do with Ukraine, that are in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia Pacific, and they don't really see the point. And turning to that part of the world, has there been any discussion of China and increasing tensions with Taiwan? Yes, 100 uh, percent. That's really the main topic on the agenda. It's um, so discussion is taking place this, place this morning in Bucharest. Um, it will be the topic of the day and will be the topic of the next uh, few years, um, because the issue is there is a militarization of China. It's um, it's really intense. The US has come up with this report um, that's really frightening. Um, and they do press the allies um, looking towards uh, Taiwan and China a bit more, because I think um, everyone is quite aware of the fact that if we do have or there is a conflict at the moment, um, even if it's not through war and anything like that directly with Russia, um, it might be, I mean, the next conflict might be with uh, China and it might be over Taiwan. So I think um, allies have really been um, saying that we need to step up support um, to Taiwan or at least um at least step up or like pressure against China. Maybe that's more like it, and um, and saying that it's very important to also look at this part of the world. That's mainly the U.S. actually pushing, uh, but they are being followed by other countries, such as the U.K. Um, and whereas some others, like the Baltics, for example, do also say Baltic countries. They do say, well, it is also turning. Um, I mean, it's also diverting mm. our attention from Russia to another conflict that's really not happening at the moment and that may never happen really Aurélie Punier thank you very much Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season Monocle offers something that you won't find elsewhere 
a truly international perspective and unrivaled insights into business, culture, design, and more. A present that lasts all year, bringing big ideas, stories of opportunity, and plenty of optimism direct to your door. When you subscribe, you'll get a 10% discount in our shops and online, and of course, a free limited edition tote bag. As well as 10 issues of the magazine, you'll receive our annual specials and access to our exclusive digital travel guides. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15. Well, it's 10.12 in Ankara and 7.12 here in London. Two weeks ago, one of Istanbul's main shopping boulevards was struck by a female suicide bomber who killed six, including two children. As a result, ordinary Kurds in neighbouring Syria have been pounded by Turkish jets, drones and artillery in response. Well, I'm joined by Hannah Lucinda Smith, Monocle's Istanbul correspondent. Hannah, thank you for joining us this morning. Firstly, how heavy a bombardment has this been by President Erdogan? Well, it's certainly far heavier than anything that's been going on for the past three years. Um, This threat that Turkey sees from the Kurdish-controlled part of Syria, the northeastern area, is a perennial thing. And there's always drone operations, reconnaissance operations, and occasional strikes going on in that area. But what we've seen um, over the past two weeks is really an uptick of that. So strikes on energy installations, uh, strikes on oil fields, uh, some strikes which have targeted uh, leadership of the YPG, the Syrian Kurdish militia, but then also strikes that activists inside Syria are saying are hitting civilian targets, so including a school, including a hospital. And they're saying that, uh, you know, as well as those uh, militia leaders, a number of civilians have also been killed. And as I just mentioned there, this was latest wave was triggered uh, by that suicide bomber. Have they got actually firm proof of her affiliations and where she was from? Well, the Turkish government and intelligence services are certainly proffering proof uh, in the Turkish media. Um, so pretty soon after after the woman was arrested, they were saying that she'd come over the border from Syria with co-conspirators, come illegally over the border. Um, they had quite a lot of information about where she'd been staying in Istanbul. Just earlier this week as well, they released what they say is an ID card, a, a, a YPG uh, military ID card of one of her co-conspirators. So certainly... Uh, the Turkish government is kind of you know, drip-dripping information. And you report that um, Turkish tanks are lining up along Syria's border. How serious is the threat of a new invasion into ter- into Syria? Uh, certainly the people inside Syria are taking it really seriously. I mean, there are people, you know, already kind of leaving their houses each night, going and trying to find safer places to sleep. Um, and also you, other countries, you, the US has put out uh, a, a statement warning against a kind of escalation of more violence in Syria. Russia is also involved. They're trying to broker some kind of agreement where uh, Turkey agrees to scale back any imminent operation. But certainly the rhetoric that's coming from President Erdogan, he's speaking pretty much every day, saying things like, you know, nobody will tell us how to deal with our security concerns. This won't be limited to an air war. So there's, you know, certainly from the Turkish side, there's a lot of rhetoric suggesting that a ground operation is imminent. 
The two powers that could stand in his way, though, Russia and the US, obviously both tied up with events going on with Ukraine. Is that going to give uh, President Erdogan cover to mount an operation in Syria? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, he knows this very, very well. He knows just how important he is since the start of the Ukrainian war, both to the US and to Russia. To the US for the reason that, you know, Turkey uh, is still blocking Sweden and Finland's membership of NATO. Uh, It needs to give its consent for that to happen. So the US can't push back too hard for that reason. And then from Russia's side, um, Turkey hasn't imposed sanctions on Russia. And so a lot of oligarchs, state companies, individuals that all funneling money uh, through Turkey through you know, business property investments. So you know both powers that have got you know significant military presence in Syria, which could push back against Erdogan, are both kind of hamstrung. And of course, elections are on the horizon for President Erdogan. Is he hoping to use this to his advantage for those? I mean, he certainly has done in the past. Um, you know, it's always proved kind of a very popular move across a cross-section, a political cross-section of Turkish society, um, not just Erdogan's supporters, to launch these kind of operations. You, you have to remember about Turkey, the the kind of struggle with the PKK, the um, Kurdish militia that uh, Erdogan says is, is linked to the Syrian Kurdish militias. This is really long running. It's been going on since the early 1980s. Tens of thousands of people have died uh, in this really long-running conflict. And, you know, any kind of operation against, um, you know, Kurdish militias or a Kurdish terrorist threat goes down really well. And in the past, you know, we've seen significant boosts at the polls for Erdogan uh, when he's launched these kind of operations. But I think this time, you know, there, there are other problems in Turkey principally the economy and the you know opinion polls when they ask people you know what's your main concern it's not security and it's not foreign policy it's the economy so i think this time it might not be quite so successful in kind of distracting people's attention and another distraction he has been using is of course those uh, swedish and finland applications for nato as just mentioned nato leaders have been in discussion uh, about expansion in uh, bucharest what's the latest on the stalling of those applications yeah well i mean erdogan at point seems to be moving towards uh, you know giving the us what it wants giving nato what it wants but it looks very, very unlikely that uh, that Turkey is going to sign off on that before uh, the new year, at least, and possibly not until after the elections. I mean, again, uh, these kind of, you know, uh, power games, these diplomatic spats with Western countries, uh, also with the EU and with NATO have played really, really well. Um, you know, there is a sense in Turkey that you know, the, the West is kind of hypocritical when it's when it's dealing with Turks and dealing with Turkey. You know, it feels that it was promised EU membership for decades, never happened. You know, it feels that the US has been, you know, backing groups in Syria which threaten Turkey's security. So, you know, playing on this kind of anti-Western sentiment and, you know, Erdogan presenting himself as this leader who's powerful enough to stop the West doing exactly what it wants, again, could play really well ahead of the elections. And just something you mentioned there, final points. Is there still much of a mood for EU membership in Turkey? I think, you know, it's it's just sort of fallen out of most people's minds. You know, five years ago, six years ago, um, Turkey was promised uh, visa-free travel in the Schengen area as part of the refugee deal that Ankara did with the EU. That never materialised. And then on top of that, it's it's been decades that Turkey has been a candidate 
uh, country for EU membership. Now, the talks and the accession process has been on ice for several years, principally because of the decline in Turkey's human rights record, uh, democratic record. So I think, you know, that's really on the back burner. Um, but there, there are some interesting opinion polls around. I mean, at the start of Erdogan's tenure two decades ago, two thirds of Turks wanted to join the EU. Now it's less than half. Um, and I think, you know, that's really a result of this kind of resentment that a lot of Turks feel towards the EU. Mm, and be watching as Ukraine is fast tracked in as well. Well, uh, Hannah Lucinda Smith, thank you very much. Still to come on the programme, we look at a new energy deal between Qatar and Germany. This is The Globalist on Monocle 24. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Well, it has just gone 10.21 in Doha and it's 7.21 here in London. Germany's football team might be struggling at the World Cup in Qatar, but the country's government have scored a deal with the host nation for liquefied natural gas. Rachel Morrison is the team leader for Power, Gas and Renewables at Bloomberg. Rachel, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what do we know of the details and scale of this deal? Well, we know that... It's a deal for about 2 million tonnes of LNG a year, um, which will go to Germany, and it starts in 2026. So what it represents really is some success for Germany in this global fight to sign up for long-term LNG contracts, because we saw a similar deal by China a couple of weeks ago for more LNG, but that shows the competition between Europe and other nations in Asia, particularly, which is a huge consumer of energy, to try to agree these deals. And in terms of the logistics of this, is this going to involve, I'm guessing, a lot of sea transportation? Is Germany set up to receive it in this way? Yes, that's right. So these long-term deals mean that you will definitely get some supply. And then what we've seen um, during this crisis is competition and very high prices in the spot market to sort of top up these long-term contracts. So this will come by ship um, to Germany. And at the moment, Germany doesn't have any LNG terminals. But as a result of the war um, in Ukraine and the cut in gas that they've received from Russia, they're building floating LNG terminals. So the government is um, leasing five of these floating terminals. And then there's also one other privately rented terminal, which are going to pop up around Germany in order to receive this fuel to try to replace those lost supplies from Russia. And in terms of the amount that's been lost from Russia, the the investigation is still ongoing into the um, apparent sabotage of uh, Nord Stream 1 and 2. Uh, Is it possible that Qatar is going to be able to replace the same volume uh, that Russia was pumping in? Well, this deal is quite small in comparison to the amount of gas that Russian gas that Germany imported, um, say in 2021, it's just 6%. But usually countries don't want to match their entire consumption 
via long-term deals because it's more expensive. And also with the energy transition, everybody in Europe is trying to use less gas. So that's been one of the things holding back, particularly countries like Germany, from signing these long-term deals, is knowing that by the end of this deal, and this one ends in 2040, Germany is going to want less gas. So they probably don't want to sign lots and lots of these contracts Um, But unfortunately, countries like Qatar, they only want long term deals. They want the certainty and they need that that to finance the production of the gas. So they usually want sort of 20 years or more, which China is willing to sign. And so far, Europe has really been a lot less willing to sign up to. And what did Qatar get out of this deal? Well, they get the certainty um, of revenue from selling the gas. So that obviously for them provides a um, the transparency of how much money they'll be able to make. And the idea when you're producing gas is to try to get as many people to sign up to these long-term deals as possible. Because if things change, if the energy transition is faster than people think, they still have these contracts and people still have to buy the gas. So it's good for them and gives them certainty um, when producing And in terms of uh, the state of German household and industrial energy bills uh, this winter, what are we seeing so far? Well, we're seeing that it's very weather dependent still at this point in the winter. So when the weather was mild, demand went down. And as soon as it started to get colder again, we're seeing that creeping up. And in the last few days, it really has got a lot colder in Europe. And next week, we're set for really quite a cold snap, which is going to test the market. We're starting to take gas out of storage. We've spoken before about how much gas there is in storage in Europe. We're now using that and the winter has really begun and we'll start to see how quickly we get through that stored gas, whether people have been listening to the messages coming from politicians to try to use less energy and just how the balance is going to shape up going into the sort of very colder months that people are worried about in January and February. And are any other European nations pursuing similar deals with Qatar? Yes, they are indeed. Um, We know that uh, the UK is also looking for long-term gas deals. They've been talking to the US and that was under the trust government. But we we know that um, Rishi Sunak is also trying to secure deals because everybody wants to make sure that their country will be okay, will have enough supplies of gas. So, Other companies in Germany have also been talking to Qatar about getting gas. So there could be more to come, um, more deals similar to this. And do you think this failure of Germany's energy policy and its soft handling of of Russia is going to come to dominate the view of former Chancellor Angela Merkel's legacy? Yes, it has somewhat overshadowed her sort of... um, good reputation when it came to energy. I mean, she had been pushing the energy transition and had been a huge reason that renewables took off. But towards the end of her tenure, she sort of backed off a little bit from pushing renewables as hard as she could have, which is now a criticism with hindsight that people have of her. And really, Germany was very, very reliant on Russian gas. And, you know, it isn't perhaps a surprise to many that Putin would weaponize gas supplies. It's happened before. We've seen transit gas through Ukraine be cut off before. So people perhaps shouldn't be surprised that Russia turned out to be an unreliable trading partner. Yet it was a surprise and it really revealed just how reliant Europe and particularly Germany 
is on fuel from there. Rachel Morrison, thank you. Here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. The leader of a far-right militia in the US has been found guilty of plotting to overturn Joe Biden's presidential win. A jury found Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes guilty of the rare charge of seditious conspiracy following a two-month trial. Prosecutors said he plotted an armed rebellion to stop the transfer of power from Donald Trump to Mr Biden. Former Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison has become the first leader in the country to be censured by Parliament for giving himself secret powers while in office. He secretly appointed himself to five ministries in 2020 and 2021, a move he attributed to the uncertainties of the pandemic. Most ministers were unaware they were sharing portfolios with Mr Morrison. And three Chinese astronauts have arrived at China's space station to conduct the first in-orbit crew rotation in China's space history. The Shenzhou 14 crew, who arrived in early June, will return to Earth after a week-long handover that will demonstrate the station's ability to temporarily accommodate six astronauts, which is another record for China's space program. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Well, it's 8.28 in Paris and 2.28 in Washington, D.C., where President Macron has arrived on a state visit to celebrate 250 years of the two countries' alliance. Scott Lucas is an adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute at the University uh, at University College Dublin. Scott, thank you for joining us. Um, firstly, how significant is this first state visit of President Biden's administration 22 months in? Well, it's significant for a couple of reasons. I think the first is is that it's the idea that we're getting back not to normal. Nothing's normal these days, but at least we're getting back to face-to-face diplomacy at the highest level after the pandemic uh, and the instability uh, of the past couple of years. And of course, the second uh, big message is that the instability caused by specifically by Donald Trump and uh, his rather unique way of conducting American foreign policy, that's over. Uh, the idea that America was going to go it alone, or rather that Trump was going to go it alone, that's gone. And the third big message is is one which has been brought about by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and that is there is now a, an energizing of U.S.-European relations, but also a need to look for a 21st century U.S.-European relationship, which is not, you know, the you know, America leads and Europe follows, or that Europe breaks away, leaving Washington behind when you need unity to face not only the issue of Russia, but also where we go in terms of China over the next year, uh, next few years. And the UK and many other nations like to claim a special relationship uh, with America. But this one does go back to before the US was an independent nation. What's the current condition of it? Well, yeah, I mean, for all those Brits who like to say that we have that special relationship, it was the French that actually uh, defended or worked with uh, us Americans during the revolution against the UK. But leaving behind a bit of history, I think the message here uh, is that also in the context of Brexit and the UK isolating itself in some senses from Europe, that the U.S. is is no longer looking at a first amongst equals with its allies. Now, that's been true for some time, given that the U.S., of course, is very much involved in terms of what happens in Asia. Uh, the Americans have global interest in other parts of the world. But the Biden administration made it very clear 
that it was looking for renewed bonds with the European community. That includes the European Union. It includes other European organizations across economic, uh, political, and military and cultural fields. And I think it is that question of, all right, how are we going to have a new Europe, a new UK, if we can get one, and a new US foreign policy, which not only deals with what's happening with the Ukraine war, but takes us beyond that. And the two men themselves, if we just focus in, I mean, they're from different uh, generations. But are President Biden and President Macron friendly? Are they on good terms? But yeah, they, I mean, there's a respect for each other. You know, I'm not sure, you know, these guys are going to be best buddies. And I think too often in international relations, we look for bromances, um, you know, based on personalities. Both men uh, have in politics for quite some time now, although Biden's got a few decades advantage on Macron. Uh, both are very pragmatic individuals. Uh, both are very confident in themselves. And so I think that's a basis for, let's say, as again, a meeting of equals. That said, both will have their interest at heart. So for all this talk about renewing U.S.-French relations, do watch for one issue to be raised for Macron very firmly with the Americans, which is uh, the French do not like the subsidies for U.S. Uh, automotive companies for electrical cars. They want French and German, well, they want French cars included in those subsidies. So that trade issue, uh, which is pivoted around Biden's landmark Build Back Better Act, that trade issue may be the one flying the ointment uh, for all the appearances of unity this week. And how do they resolve that? Is Biden simply going to say to Macron, well, Europe needs to create its own sort of favorability for its own energy companies? No, I mean, the, the idea of if you have France then providing subsidies for its automotive companies, you get into a subsidy war and you don't want that to happen. What the French are going to ask for is they're going to ask for exemptions where French companies, as well as those in Mexico and Canada, can also produce cars where uh, buyers can get uh, rebates for purchasing them. And those will that will be the subject, I think, of talks on December the 5th between U.S. and French delegations. So Macron will only raise the issue, and indeed the issue has already been raised by putting it out to the media. It'll then be up to U.S. and French uh, you know, working level folks to get this resolved over the next few months. And when it comes to the sort of geopolitical issues, China and Ukraine, are both leaders aligned? I think oh, they are in Ukraine. I think the, I don't think we can underestimate the significance of what Vladimir Putin has done to bring uh, not only the U.S. and France together, but the U.S. and Europe together, indeed, the U.S., Europe, and the international community together. So there's clear alignment there. On China, I think, again, there's going to be protracted discussions here. Uh, the Americans were taking a much firmer line with China on economic issues uh, and on military issues than other European countries before the Ukraine war. Uh, that's especially compared to, say, a country like Germany, uh, which had put much more emphasis on a trading relationship with Beijing. I think the question beyond aligning Europe and the United States is, is what is that alignment? Are you talking about confrontation with China? Are you talking about a, a competition with China or even a coexistence as China develops its own alternative economic system? And France reacted uh, very vocally when they were blindsided by their submarines being ditched by the Australians in favor of the AUKUS pact last year. Has that a rift been soothed over at all? I think that rift has been put in perspective. Um, the French were miffed, uh, to put it diplomatically, when uh, 
the U.S. and the U.K. and Australia got together with this deal to support Australian nuclear submarines. Um, but I think that is that's passed. I mean, the French lost out in terms of a bit of income there. But once more, the the change in international relations over the past nine months uh, with the catalyst to Ukraine means that I think it's live and let live regarding specifics like uh, AUKUS, as it's termed. And now you focus on the big ticket items uh, of how you not only get cooperation between U.S. and France, but how both countries work with the newer European countries, especially those in the east, the Baltic states, uh, Poland, uh, who are on the front line of that Ukraine war. Mm. And finally, just briefly, this is President Biden's first state visit, obviously delayed by the pandemic. How powerful a tool are these? Are there any kind of interesting items on the agenda for these two leaders? And who will be wanting the invite next? Well, you know, everybody's talking about the fact that, you know, the big ticket singer, John Baptiste, will be singing at the, the state dinner. And you're going to have all the ceremony. You're going to have the spectacle of a state visit. Um, so, you know, that'll be there to sort of give the, the feel good factor in terms of who's next. That's a really, really interesting question, because you, you've had a lot of change uh, among uh, in the past 12 months. You know, you've got a new German administration after more than a decade of Angela Merkel with Olaf Scholz. Uh, you've got, what are we now on our third prime minister here in the UK mm. with Rishi Sunak this year? Uh, but of course, before you've that, got, you've got a new king here as well, if it's a state level. A new king. And yeah, that idea of a head of, that's actually a very good point you've raised. And I hadn't thought it through. But the idea of uh, either a visit by Biden over here to the UK, which I think is more likely uh, to meet King Charles, or King Charles going across the United States, that would be a big symbol that, you know, the U.S. has not left the U.K. behind, despite all the problems of Brexit. Uh, but I, I think at the moment, let's get through the Macron visit, mm. because with all the talk of who might be next, we still have the day-to-day -day reality of getting Ukraine through the winter against the Russians. Mm. Well, uh, Scott Lucas, thank you very much. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. It's 16.38 in Tokyo, 8.38 in Paris. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me down the line is Agnes Poirier, journalist and author of Notre Dame, the Soul of France. Agnes, thank you for joining us. What have you spotted in today's papers first? Well, have you ever heard of la grande flemme? Uh, this is a great word, flemme, F-L-E-M-M-E. Um, I'm sure you heard of the great resignation in America, mm. also known as the quiet quitting. Well, uh, the Jean Jaurès think tank has come up with a, a, a lot of figures and a very interesting study. And La Grande Flemme is just the French version of that uh, quiet quitting, that post-COVID wave of people, particularly young people, quitting their job for more meaningful activities. But as always, and or as often in France, the French are really contrarian. So, of course, I mean, the idea is to 
do the bare minimum at work, no initiatives, no zeal, just the bare minimum and invest all your energy elsewhere in your life. If you look at figures, it's very striking. In 1990, 60% of the French deemed their work very important in their lives. Today, there are only 24% to think that their life um, is very enriched, if you'd like, by, by their work. But at the same time, especially the very young, age between 18 and, and 24, um, they they really want a lot from their employers. Uh, they want personal fulfillment. Uh, they want their intimacy or the, their intimate needs to be recognized by their employers. For instance, they completely reject the open plan offices. They want their own office and, and space. And they want also um, what I call intimate needs. For instance, if they feel depressed, well, they want to be able to go on a short holiday um, and uh, paid for, of course, by uh, their employers. And there is also something that is quite striking that um, almost 40% of the very young um, between uh, the age of 18 and 24, as I said, are even not depressed exactly, but anxious and, and they worry that their first job is not going to be as fulfilling or inspiring as they would hope it to be. Uh, so I thought that made some very interesting uh, mm. uh, reading. Uh, but but really, I would urge um, people to look at the details because it's a very long study and there are really nuggets of statistics. And Le Monde, uh, the, the column I read in Le Monde this morning, uh, uh, made it a slightly lighter subject than it is. Agnes, that's really interesting. The, the points you raise there are very different to what I think a lot of people are quite quitting or or changing the way they work. And I know, for instance, in the UK, a lot of it is about not wanting to commute, about wanting to work from home, about more flexibility when it comes to family time. But you've mentioned sort of the more mental health side there, but also office design. That's not really an issue I've heard before in this. Why is that important in France? Well, I mean, they want their own space. That's how they explain it. Uh, they don't want to share. They want, you know, to be able to uh, be in a cocoon to feel some security. Uh, they say in uh, the study that they feel kind of threatened. Mm. Uh, they like conviviality, but uh, on their own terms, uh, right. not when they work. Okay. Uh, and turning to a different kind of worker in France, uh, bakers who sell 12 million baguettes a day to their compatriots. UNESCO says they should be uh, named an intangible cultural heritage. Yes, and apparently it's going to uh, happen today. Um, the announcement that UNESCO is making it a uh, uh, baguette, sort of a part of the world cultural heritage. Um, well, if you, I don't know, if, uh, I mean, I think you've uh, lived in France, so you will be uh, familiar with uh, your baker asking you whether you like your baguette well-baked white or golden. Personally, I prefer it golden uh, and quite crusty. Well, um, I mean, on, on paper, the recipe of a baguette is very, very simple. You know, a bit of water, a bit of yeast or sardau, um, flour and salt. But the secret of it is in the fermentation process. It has to be quite long. Uh, so industrial, you know, made uh, baguettes are not going to uh, to spend much time on that fermentation process, unfortunately. And of course, what makes it so special, it's his shape. So what uh, UNESCO, uh, the UNESCO label uh, will, will have doing is preserving that savoir-faire behind it, even issued a, a certification and training programs so that that savoir-faire is not lost uh, mm. in the next generations. 
Um, and there's been some great uh, literature and poetry produced uh, by soldiers over the generations, but uh, some writers are deciding to actually get involved with the army to produce new works. Yes, that's in L'Express, and that makes fascinating reading, actually. And I think I'm going to buy that uh, uh, book that is a collective uh, book, different essays. And for the 400th anniversary of French Marines that were founded by Richelieu in 1622, well, uh, the French Marines have invited 17 French writers to spend time, but really time, uh, sometimes a few months, in different regiments, uh, throughout France, but also overseas territory, just to, uh, um, uh, you know, just to, to uh, share their lives, the, the life of the regiment, and also uh, to, do, to take part in some operation and to come up, of, of course, with the text. So you, we have philosophers, there are women writers, there are uh, male writers. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to the piece uh, written by Antoine Compagnon. Antoine Compagnon is a very well-known Marcel Proust expert. Um, and apparently he went to an elite uh, commando and uh, used the machine guns. Having said that, his father used to be a general, so he probably knew something, one thing or two about machine guns uh, before going. But I'm really looking forward to reading his text. So a collective essay on, you know, some of them are deemed to be quite poetical. Uh, and also some of the writers there were very, you know, very Parisian, had knew nothing about uh, military life and have come up with very funny texts. So that will be released next week. And sort of a clash of cultures there. It sort of feels like it might be a bit of a Private Benjamin type situation if you remember the Goldie Horn film. Um, and lastly, just briefly, uh, in the World Cup, there is a uh, French woman on the pitch uh, in a very special role. Yes, she's going to make history tomorrow when she will be the first woman to act as referee um, in a World Cup of male football teams. Her name is Stephanie Frappard. She's 38. Uh, and she will be uh, um, uh, the referee of the match Germany against Costa Rica. And there are only three women uh, this year at the World Cup. Uh, the other two, one is Japanese. Her name is Yoshimi Yamashita. And the other one is Salima Wukan Sanga from Rwanda. And what is important is that as the legendary referee Pierre Luigi Colina said yesterday, uh, those women are now there because they're women simply because they are among the best referees in the world. Mm. So um, we'll be watching. Yeah, and incredibly important, especially in a, in a country like Qatar and a region like the Middle East, for young girls to see women playing such a big role uh, in global sports. Well, um, Agnes Poirier, thank you very much. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world.
Well, it's time now to talk aviation with Greg Waldron, Asia Managing Editor at Flight Global. Greg, thank you for joining us. Firstly, Riyadh is going to get a new airport. Yeah, that's correct. It's um, going to be greatly beefing up the uh, airport, and it's going to actually kind of uh, consume or subsume the existing airport. It's going to have six runways, and it's really going to set up Riyadh to be like a major hub between you know uh, Europe and the Asia-Pacific um, it kind of follows along what's happened. We've seen happen in Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and Qatar in the last, you know, 15, 20 years where they've become these sort of super connector hubs uh, connecting, you know, various parts of the world. And have they already, though, missed the boat on being a super connector? Well, it certainly would seem that they're a bit late to the game. I mean, um, uh, Emirates is is very successful, but, you know, Etihad uh, has struggled uh, over the years so, you know, it's not a surefire game anymore. And in, in addition, you know, you see, um, you know, India uh, also with, you know, Air India is probably going to become a lot more active in terms of international services as well. And that could actually start draining some traffic uh, from those super connector airports already. So I think it'll be successful, but it won't. They're not quite there at the right time. It would have been better to get in about 10, 15 years ago. Mm. And part of the sort of success of Dubai in particular has been that it is a sort of stop-off destination for a few days because they have quite relaxed rules when it comes to tourists. Is Riyadh going to have to try and market itself as a tourist destination as well and, and try to sort of turn a blind eye to sort of some Western practices? Well, that will certainly be interesting to see if they go down that route because Dubai right now, as you point out, is very attractive for tourists. You know, there's great tourist attractions. It's really easy to get around. Um, You know, it's very accessible for people from Europeans can have fun there. Asian people can have fun there Um, from the Indian subcontinent. It's a great destination for all those different regions. Um, Now, Riyadh, if they'd have to loosen up quite a bit, I think, to be as attractive as Dubai. I mean, that really depends on the, you know, the Saudi government, I guess. And turning to India now, you've mentioned their aviation industry, and we've got an airline merger on the cards. Yeah, this is actually quite an interesting development. Um, Air India traditionally has been, you know, is owned by the government, a uh, very poorly run airline, loss-making, very bloated, massive amounts of debt. But finally, after years of discussion and rumors and so forth, it was taken over by Tata Sons, which of course is India's, you know, top conglomerate. And... Um, The news has come out, so they're really working hard to really professionalize, really trim down the airline and really bring it back to the the glory days that it had in like the 1950s and 1960s. And um, the news came out yesterday that Singapore Airlines, which has a joint venture airline with Tata called Vistara, is going to take a 25% of stake in Air India and they're going to merge Vistara with Air India. And it's going to create this very um, significant airline with 218 aircraft. 30 to international and 52 domestic destinations. And that's going to be creating a really, um, probably a very strong potential to airline in the Indian subcontinent. So that's been a very interesting development. Mm. Uh, And lastly, uh, there's a new report out by the Pentagon on China's military. Yeah, indeed. Um, Every year the Pentagon uh, publishes a report about China, uh, specifically the Chinese military. And on the the aviation perspective is always, you know, very interesting reading. Um, this year, the uh, Pentagon highlights that Chinese fighter aircraft are increasingly using um, local mate, locally made engines, specifically the WS-10 engine. And this really shows you know, great maturity in the Chinese aerospace sector, which traditionally has relied on 
Russian and uh, Russian engines. So it really shows that China is making some significant strides in you know very important uh, aerospace technology. And does the report reflect on whether these have been sort of domestic breakthroughs, or is there still a high level of sort of intellectual property theft and espionage uh, getting this information? Well, there's certainly a great deal of uh, property theft and espionage that's been going on for years. I mean, China mounts a very aggressive espionage campaign against the Western aerospace industry. And I would, I would be, I certainly a lot of the, those learnings would certainly be, you know, um, found in, you know, Chinese engine technology today, no doubt about that. And it also, let's also the Pentagon also observes that China has significant outreach to, to, to source um, not only Western technology, but also, you know, Western know-how in the form of, you know, ex-military personnel, that kind of thing. So China is definitely, that's still very much going on. Mm. Well, Greg Waldron, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. Well, 20 years ago, the renowned Swiss art fair Art Basel went international and debuted its first overseas fair in Miami Beach. And this week's fair features 282 exhibitors from 38 countries and territories. Art Basel recently announced that Mark Spiegler would be stepping down as director with Noah Horowitz returning uh, as CEO. Monocle's Robert Bound caught up with them both ahead of the fair and began by asking Noah what Miami as a city has taught them as a whole. Yeah, well, first, thanks for having us. Um, I didn't go paddleboarding this morning, but I did do a swim <laughs> and a bike ride. Um, maybe not quite as early as Mark. Yeah, I mean, Miami, um, I think, has taught Art Basel how to, how to really rely on a community in a different way. I think the what's become really the fair template the world over of collectors opening of their homes, of this extraordinary VIP programmation that runs throughout the city during these show weeks was really something... Of course, that was already in place with the great institutions and, and extraordinary supporters in Basel itself, you know, for the first many decades of, of our existence. But it was really catalyzed and, and catapulted ahead with the extraordinary generosity uh, of the local collecting scene and the local institutions here in Miami. So I think it's really given our show uh, and the city a human face that's uh, really about community. Yeah, and and no, you, you're talking about the collectors there, and you 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 and, and Art Basel as a as a as a concern holds them very close to to its heart. And anyone that's visited um, the Miami Fair as a journalist or as a collector will have had a fantastic time. And and and, and having these collectors open up their houses and be so sort of generous with their time and their their expertise is an amazing thing. How how close do you do you work with collectors still, Noah? Well, we work intimately close, really hand in hand with, you know, with all our constituents here. Clearly, the, the collecting community in Miami is, is unique. Uh, in many ways, their support and desire and determination to bring Art Basel, you know, from Switzerland here 20 years ago was, was a key to, to how we arrived. Um, but it's not just the collectors, of course. You know, we spend a lot of time uh, with the local museum and institutional community that continues to grow uh, and and spread, there's a version and gallery scene here as well. You know, there were a handful of galleries of relevance when we started 20 years ago, 
you know, now there's, there's, there's a really a thriving scene spread throughout, you know, uh, greater Miami. And so we, when we're here in these cities during these weeks, but also throughout the year, we really try to embed ourselves within the community to, to listen, to hear, to ideate with them together, because that's what makes these shows distinctive, unique, and in a world also in which there are nowadays so many fairs and there's so many outlets to see uh, and experience culture. It's important to remain distinct. And so a lot of that distinction and, and what sets the feel and vibe of one fair week uh, apart from the other, you know, is really part of that. And of course, in Miami, it's the local scene, but it's also the bridge to the broader American market and, and then the market as well and, and, and the art world in Central and South America that, that's so embedded within this community. Yeah, well, well, Mark, I'll, I'll turn that over to you. In that case, um, I know that sort of some twenty years ago, maybe maybe it was a little, little, little later than twenty years ago, but Art Basel Miami was sort of talking about how it was the gateway to South America. That this was a really unique thing that it could do. That it, its sort of geographical position made it attractive to South American collectors who maybe wouldn't go to to Europe and galleries that wouldn't perhaps go to Europe or or, or London. It, was that was that a very kind of definite thing that that you that you kind of imbued the roots of Art Basel with that kind of gateway to South America thing or is it just a sort of is it a bit of reverse engineering no this was a very deliberate choice and I should point out that 20 years ago when the fair started in 2002 having been postponed for one year because of the World Trade Center attacks I was not part of the fair I was a journalist but of course I was following it very closely and I did a lot of interviews with Sam Keller and other people about it and at the time, the idea of being a gateway to Latin America was certainly valid because most major Latin American families, those who have the kind of wealth to collect and be patrons, have some combination of kids going to school or residences or businesses or bank accounts in Miami. It's always been the safe haven for the Latin American socioeconomic upper class. But it took a while for it to develop. And part of that is because Latin America has a different kind of structure of collecting than North America. North America has all these kinds of museums, museum patrons groups, you have the young patrons groups, and then the, the contemporary collecting board, and then the senior board, and then the board for this and the board for that. And Latin America was much more social. And the way the Latin American component of the collecting base at Art Basel Miami Beach grew was through people. You would have somebody who was on the international circuit and they would gather a group of friends with them to come to Art Basel Miami Beach. And then those people who weren't necessarily collecting would start to collect. And then they similarly would bring a group of their friends. And so in essence, it was really a ripple effect. That was Mark Spiegler and Noah Horowitz in conversation with Monocle's Robert Bound. You can listen to the full interview in the most recent episode of Monocle on Culture. Well, that's it for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Marcus Hippie and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands, and our studio manager, Nora Hole. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday in London, and The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs>